A word after a word after a word is power. Margaret Atwood. Welcome to Her Own Words, a Dear Damsels podcast. We're Abby and Bridie, the team behind Dear Damsels. This podcast is part of our overall mission to provide a platform for women's voices, which is what we've been doing online and in print the past four years. We want to share the stories of women in their own words. This episode, we'll be catching you up on all that's been happening with Dear Damsels in the last part of 2019. We'll also be discussing our most recent themes, strange feast and celebration, and talking about the importance of women in print this decade. Abby opened the episode with a quote by Margaret Atwood. Why did you pick this one, Abs? For a few reasons, really. It was one of the quotes that we talked about when we were first coming up with the concept of this podcast, of her own words, with it being the end of the year. And it's also basically a year since we started this podcast and recorded our first episode. We did record like 17 episodes before we recorded this one, like the first one. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. That's very true. And the quote for us really feels like it could be the mission statement for Dear Damsels. I think it's just so simple, but really effective because uh, you can almost see like the photo negative at the same time. You know, Mm. those who don't, don't have a voice are powerless those who don't have their own words I guess it's also on on my mind because it's that time of year where we're thinking lots about what we do so writing editor's letters and kind of thinking about everything we've achieved this year so yeah that I guess it's really nice to come back to this quote and I also think there's been quite a few overwhelming conversations going on at the moment (laughs) like big big, you know what with that election and everything but yeah quite big conversations where sometimes it feels like there isn't an answer and there isn't something simple you kind of often think like what can I do and it doesn't feel like there is anything you can do it feels like it's all in the hands of the powers that be Uh, so I think sometimes it's nice to have these simple quotes and mantras to come back to I mean I really like that you've sort of gone with oh Margaret Atwood wrote the like mission statement for Dear Damsels I like that that's basically (laughs) definitely wrote that first um yeah, yeah well I mean, the like that you mentioned the election, I will just say that when we are recording this episode, it is a week before 12th of December. So there'll be no mm. politics chat. We will not be talking about it. Before we started the call, Abby let me know that she has, has to FedEx her postal vote because if you don't know, we're actually doing this across the Pacific Ocean. Abby is in Australia. I am in the UK. It is 9.07pm for me. I have a glass of Bailey's. I think Abs are just drinking water. I don't know if you got a coffee as well, maybe. Uh, I made a little tea. I've already had nice. a coffee. Um, I'm so jealous of your baby. <laughs> it's too early. You can't. You can't do it pre 10 a.m. Even that's too much for me. And I'm like a notorious Bailey's drinker. Like, I did consider a little our classic um, orange juice prosecco. Why can't I remember the name of that? Bucks Fizz. What happened to you in Australia? <laughs> Have you forgotten like the staple cocktail of British brunches? Oh my god. I know. Oh, I, I did. Know. I did consider it, but. Everybody else in this house is asleep. <laughs> they just come in to see you popping like a Prosecco talking to yourself. would be quite funny, actually. I love that visual. Um, but also just to say that like if there's any weird um, sounds or anything like that, we are recording this through like an online recording platform. So please forgive us that it's not as clear when we're sitting right next to each other. Mentally, we're sitting right next to each other. But physically, I am oh. under a blanket. I don't know. I don't think you are. Necessarily. No, I'm propped up on a sofa. I, I am sad that there isn't like a video element to this exchange. But it's fine. We're making it work. 
We're going to start the episode um, with our segment called Recently on Dear Damsels, which does what it says in the tin, really. We're just going to catch up with the most recent themes and pieces that we've shared in the past three months on the website. In October, you can think back to then, our theme was strange. So we took a break in September because we launched our Kickstarter for Let Me Know in Your Home, which we'll probably talk about a bit later. And it was October, so we really wanted to come back with a strong theme, um, maybe one that was a little bit spooky. So we went with Strange, mm. which turned out to be one of our most popular yet. We read so many different takes. We read pieces about monsters and ghosts and like suspicious doorbells, illnesses and tricks in the mind that there's a huge spectrum and there's a lot that that word can cover we had a lot of subtle takes on the theme which I thought we really enjoyed um because of course it's Halloween so we were expecting and wanted the monster and the ghost but one of the pieces that stood out to us was Bathing at Gower Street by Joe Brandon which was a poem inspired by Lizzie Siddle's time modeling for John Everett Millais don't know how to pronounce that correctly but it's the painting Ophelia basically which is the one of her in the water that's incredibly famous and I've seen it like on postcards and people's tote bags I think everyone's quite familiar with it but it was a poem that sort of focused on the strangeness of her stillness because she was in a bar posing for this painting and it talks about like the liminal space that she felt she was in sort of being taken from like she was taken out of where she was and put into this painting it just felt really interesting and quite uncanny and yeah I don't know what you thought about it abs I just felt when I read it like I was brought it into the bath which sounds weird but like very internal poem I think yeah I think that idea of the uncanny and how yeah as you say she's being something from her is being taken as she's being put down onto this canvas that idea of the strangeness of seeing yourself reflected in different situations and in and sort of seeing a part of yourself in a different context the subtle creepiness of that like it's like unsettling and just a bit off and like you say that's that subtler end of strange can almost be more creepy and more effective because it yeah. almost you can't quite put your finger on what is what's off about the situation yeah and something that joe does really well in the poem is she sort of takes lizzie's Lizzie out of her body and freezes her so there's a quote that I think does it really well about that whole taking and her feeling living but not really there and her awareness of the scene without her actually feeling like she's physically there and the quote goes we keep the light but it toys with him it keeps me frozen there are many things not their true selves till the sun is set he has taken as much of me as he needs into the paint but every living thing must have a shadow And I just think that's so, like the shadowy part, that's what we're kind of talking about, right? That sort of space of not quite being there, not quite being within yourself, something a bit different, something a bit off, sort of the passivity that she feels by being captured by this man and put onto a painting while she's lying in the bath for like four hours. And I think Joe Brandon gave us a note saying that like she got really sick because she was just lying in the bath for so long. Mm. Quite like a spooky, creepy story behind this really well-known painting that I had no idea about before. Um, which was a very interesting take on the theme because it covered so many strange bases for me. Yeah, and I love that line, every living thing must have a shadow. It's Mm. super creepy. But yeah, from that to a more maybe obvious strange piece, um, which we also really enjoyed. And this kind of does hark back to the actual zombies and monsters that maybe first come to mind when you hear the word strange. This piece is Your College Boyfriend is Back from the Dead by Anna Claire McGrath, which uh, we were hooked into from just the title alone, which is just brilliant. And yeah, doing a similar thing in some ways. It's an everyday dread, but putting that into a scary film sort of setting so 
And that's when I guess horror is most effective when you can recognize a part of yourself in it and it's putting it into the real world. So it feels all too real. Yeah, I really feel that the sort of things we're talking about in terms of ghosts and monsters and that sort of classic horror, this pulled it forward in a really fun way. Like it reminded us of the funness of strange funness of things being a bit weird and like being able to turn that into a really good piece of fiction which we really really enjoyed was a fantastic thing to receive in our inbox yeah that's I don't think we've had a theme quite like that where where there are so many interpretations that are really fun like the first thing about them is the sense of fun um but I'll read a quote from the piece so that you can all hear how brilliant it is your college boyfriend worries you love your friends more than him he doesn't understand why you don't want to feed him Elizabeth's brains or Sarah's when he needs them to survive. If you cared about me, you would consider me the most important, he tells you. You will not tell him where Elizabeth and Sarah live. His poetry has gotten worse since he died. He writes fragments that all end in... Mm. Mm. <laughs> which he reads aloud to you for your feedback. When he finishes and you do not applaud, he shakes backwards and forwards like he might collapse and his grey skin peels above the temple. I really enjoyed your zombie noise there. That was really great. <laughs> when we when we highlighted this quote, I did not think about how I would have to pronounce. <laughs> you did it very well. You did it very very well. My favorite line in that is, um, "His poetry has gotten worse since he died." Just ah, uh, love it. And there's so many soft poet boys who would come back from the dead just to read me poetry. Like definitely know that other guy. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, I don't know. Maybe it's not sad at all. I've never had a poet, a poet in inverted commas, boyfriend. But oh, I had a poet boyfriend. I've just had a boy who would like to talk to me about poetry. I've had lots of boys wanting to give me their poetry and their opinion. Yes, opinions and poetry. I'm like, oh, you're really misunderstanding my interest because none of it is in you. Um, but <laughs> I really love that quote. Just think it's so great. She's really captured that sort of horror be like horror film funniness and sort of campness and it feels so relatable as well like exactly mm. I just started talking about like boys who try and give me poetry who aren't zombies but you know I have feel like I have been in the situation before yeah and there's something quite teenage about it as well isn't it just like that time when you would have watched those crappy films for fun and also that ex-boyfriend time oh anyway mm. yeah so moving on to our, our next uh, theme and month in November our theme was feast and this was another really popular one. Every time we have a theme that relates to food in some way or food writing, we get so many pieces, which we love because we love reading about food. And often we get quite a lot of creative nonfiction and personal essays. So that kind of personal relationship we all have to food, the culture of food. And I think food gives us such an insight into culture. Um, it's yeah. kind of a shortcut for how we you know we eat three times a day or maybe more times as many times as you like so yeah it's however you choose to eat and cook and provide food for yourself that's formed such a large part of our everyday life yeah I think it also talks about like the comfort that food can give you I mean like when we were thinking of a November theme I think we always try and go of like cozy and warming and like stuff like mm -hmm. that and so feast felt really good for that because we were able to sort of draw on those themes without making the theme like cushions or whatever I think that we were quite surprised with some of the essays we got back because although they're, they're all personal essays talking about food everything is so individual and everyone's experiences are so different in the way you think about food 
the way your relationship with food is built, what you cook, when you eat, what you're saying apps, like three times a day, four times a day, like all that sort of routine is so intrinsically linked into how you process your day and process what happens to you. And a piece that I felt and what we felt really drew that out was Healing Power Food, Eating My Feelings by Sarah Murphy, which is sort of about the food that can mend a broken heart and trying to find that comfort again that you feel when you're feeling sad and low through food. But really, I think what we both liked about this essay was it was about the decision to try and take care of yourself through eating, not doing the whole thing of, you know, falling into diet culture, trying to eat healthier, trying to get like a revenge body and all that quite toxic language. It was more about like food can be a friend and a foe, but sometimes it can be your friend and it can mend you and it can help you. And Sarah really writes about this really vividly. Um, And I'll just read a quote from the piece that I hope sort of conveys those sorts of emotions. To be clear, no single meal can cure a broken heart. That obsessive bloody organ with its ceaseless cry of I'm in pain, as persistent and difficult to ignore as the internet. But it is a beautiful thing to decide to butter bread, separate stems from leaves, stir a thickening pot to boil. To pour goodness and heat and pleasure back into your vitamin deficient body during a time when you're also considering taking an oath to lock yourself and your wounded feelings away in a windowless room with no phone signal for the next hundred years. Anyway, even if you do decide to become a hermit out of spite at an ex, there will still be snacks. Mm, I love that so much, that last line. Yeah. There are so many parts that you could pull out of that piece that are immediately relatable. Another line that I really loved or another section was about Sarah writes about going, basically deciding whether she can get herself a takeaway. And I haven't got the exact line in front of me, but she says, do like the emotional benefits outweigh like the financial strain mm. of going, going to yeah. get a takeaway doesn't like, she end up in Lidl or something she goes to yeah, Lidl that, and my father's ravioli I do that all the time Sarah I feel you like I completely understand yeah I love that Lidl gets a reference and like some cheap ravioli that just does you know does the job it might not be the most fulfilling meal even in the world but it just does exactly what it needs to in that moment um yeah it was just such a brilliant piece And another piece that we had that also in the same way was a personal essay and had a lot of links actually talking about food and a kind of loneliness or at least being alone was 54 Meals by Alex Lemon. We both just absolutely loved this piece as soon as it came into the inbox and it's just put together so brilliantly. We really struggled to pick out one single quote from this thing and I did seriously wonder whether we should just read the whole thing aloud on this podcast. (laughs) The, I think the opening paragraph does the best job of introducing it, so I will read that. In South Korea, there's a word for eating alone, honbap, a pushing together of syllables from honja, meaning alone, and bap, meaning meal, or literally cooked rice. A pushing together because in a country that puts group before individual, that emphasizes social capital and personal connections, to eat alone raises eyebrows, questions, doubts, a feeling of pity, the prospect of shame. Where are your colleagues or friends? Does no one want to eat with you? Did you do something wrong? Are you unliked, unlikable? Eating alone isn't enjoying your own company. It's implying you're wangda, an outcast. Um, Yeah, and the title 54 Meals refers to how many times Alex counted that she would be eating or having a meal on this 18-day trip that she took to South Korea. I'll be eating a lot of hombap, she writes. The piece just does a really amazing job of giving you this insight into a part of South Korean culture through food. Mm. Um, And as we were saying, yeah, that just, it's amazing how food can 
do so much to tell you about the way the general way of life somewhere and so yeah interesting just to see Alex in you know taken out of her own culture and way of living and, and put into this this different relationship with food yeah, I think I remember when we read this, I think when it first came in the inbox, we both said that it felt like travel journalism in a way, mainly because she's talking about experience of different culture, but what the focus is so specifically is food and even more specifically her own relationship with eating alone and how by going to this place it becomes completely changed. We have a mutual friend, big friend of the podcast, big friend of the collective, Kitty Stockton, um, and she went to Japan recently by herself. And when we read this piece, we're just like, you have to read this piece because she ate a lot of meals by herself. She was traveling alone for most of it. That sort of feeling, I don't think she ever felt shame about it because, you know, it's Kitty. Um, But I think definitely like the sort of stuff that Alex talks about, about being, feeling out of place, you know, looking for kindness in strangers, that sort of thing. Like that's an experience that you have when you feel displaced, even if you're in the UK. Like it's a universal experience and she caps it so well, I think. I think I want to read that book forever. Like it's so nice. I just think it's one of the best pieces on culture and food I've ever read, which is a big statement, but one I will stand by, despite the fact that I am drinking a Bailey's at the same time as talking about this. Um, so speaking of Baileys so obviously coming into the end of the year it's always a time of thinking how far you've come what you've achieved what's next and also just celebrating that you even got to the end of the year so our theme in December has been celebration and this year as we mentioned earlier it's been a lot of changes for Team DD such as Australia Um, we've started (laughs) this podcast we did our first Kickstarter for our first paperback there's a lot of firsts and we've come really far in 12 months so we wanted to sort of give ourselves some space and give the collective and writers a chance to sort of look back and talk to us about what they want to celebrate but actually the piece that we're going to focus on is something a bit different to that it's about not celebrating something not getting that celebration that you expected and it's a piece of short fiction called The Wedding by Candy Isukwana I'm sorry if I mispronounced that it's just it's so beautiful it's about a wedding that doesn't go ahead it's about the lessons that we can learn and finding smaller joys and the life that you have being one that you could always celebrate regardless of the big moments the big champagne moments it's also a really nice piece about female friendship one of our favorite subjects as we all know this passage that I'm going to focus on is a part where her protagonist is thinking about weddings and talking about her expectations of weddings and she's focusing on this video that she's seen of of her mum and her dad getting married and that sort of idea a bit up in her head that she's still got in her head when she's trying to reflect on the wedding that didn't happen so I'm just going to read this quote That night you remembered yourself as a kid, watching their faces in that grainy footage again and again, so different to the stoic, spectacled twosome who raised you as a kid. Sometimes you think it's the reason you picked up your dad's old clunky camera, the only thing you had of him when he left. You wanted to capture some of what you saw in that video, that happiness, that weird, fascinating time machine. You used to wonder if you would do the same one day, whether you would pick up a champagne or a wine, pour it into a cup and dance across your wedding venue and into someone's arms, whether someone would love you like that. Even at that young age, you've begun to doubt it. Yeah, I really love this piece too. And I think it captures a lot about what we we wanted to capture in some way with Celebrate, which is that it, it can be like a communal celebration and kind of a more traditional idea of what you think of when you think about celebrating. But then there's also that aspect of celebrating yourself, coming back to celebrating everything you've achieved like on your own and 
that kind of smaller kind of celebration, more personal in a way. Yeah, I think Candy really does a brilliant job of sort of talking it through. I mean, your expectations of a massive event that's meant to be a big celebration. And in the end, not to spoil the piece, but it ends with a night of her surrounded by friends and pizza. Like there's different moments that you can find joy in. And I do think that's what we did want from the theme. And we did get loads of pieces about the small joys, the small celebrations, the small things, realizing you're still here and you're still going, mm. which is great to have at the end of a difficult year yeah. <laughs> or or changing year and definitely something that you always want to look forward to potentially with a baby's in hand you don't all have to be like me but you know having something to look forward to and realizing that there's always going to be stuff to celebrate regardless of if you're getting married or not well that's a bit of a weird sentence to say but you know what I mean. <laughs> Regardless yeah. of getting married or not. Um, yeah, I was going to also add the idea of a wedding wasn't something that I had initially thought of when we were writing the theme letter. We had Christmas on the mind, but also maybe birthdays. And we did get quite a few pieces about birthdays. And, and there are a couple of brilliant ones on the site. It's really interesting that you say about the pressure before an event and how that can completely take away any joy out of that celebration if you're so worried about the pressure of the of everybody being there like it can be a really pressured thing to have to celebrate on a specific day at a specific time you're supposed to feel specific feelings and what happens if you get to that moment and you don't feel the way you expected to it can be like a not fight or flight that's not the phrase I'm looking for but like well, like anticlimactic you know like, that, sort like of, the, mm, yeah. that moment where a lot of stuff has been building and you have to it's interesting that we see in this piece like she has to make a decision that has, and there's been these feelings building all along this, yeah. this moment for her to make a choice but yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a brilliant piece I love reading it so much That brings us on to our Dearest Damsels section of the podcast. As you know, we love to use this podcast as a space to talk about the women out there doing amazing creative things. Today, we're speaking to Lemon House Theatre, which was set up by previous DD contributor Jennifer Kerris, along with Sammy and Julie. Earlier this year, they brought two new shows to the Bunker Theatre, both exploring how art intersects with identity. We're so pleased to welcome Jennifer onto the podcast to tell us more about why she and Sammy have set up Lemon House and what they've achieved so far. I'm Jennifer Karras. I co-run Lemon House Theatre with Sammy and Jilly. We started the company back in December last year as we really wanted to create a space where artists could come and take risks with their work and experiment, particularly with the form of theatre. Because um, sometimes theatre can take itself quite seriously and you feel like you really can't mess up and there's a lot of pressure. And so we wanted to do the opposite of that and make Lemon House Theatre somewhere that's like a community hub where artists can come, meet other people, collaborate, try something new and just feel a bit more free with the work that they're going to create. Me and Sammy have met few years ago we both worked for a site called the London Playwrights blog and we realised quite quickly that we liked a similar type of theatre which is plays that really celebrate the fact that they are plays so they like the live nature of theatre having an audience there those sort of things and we really wanted to celebrate that artist audience relationship so that's the kind of work that the company's been making most recently, we honoured the Bunker Theatre in South London with our double bill of shows, Different Sand, which was the story of two British Algerian sisters who were going through some quite serious changes and kind of dealing with that and how that affected their relationship. And then also our show Willow, which is a breakup story between girlfriends and asked, how do we tell our own stories and are we really honest with ourselves? Both plays were comedies because we also wanted to challenge that whole, you know, women aren't funny. I was going to say stereotype, but kind of lie. Um, <laughs> and because like recently the funniest like TV show 
most plays, films, anything that I've seen recently has all been by women. So, yeah, definitely a lie. So it was nice getting, getting all those laughs in. From doing the shows at the bunker, we were just so appreciative of the support that we got for the shows, particularly from the Algerian and queer community, because, you know, these were our first full-length shows, so we were obviously full of questions and figuring out a lot of things as we went along. But that's probably the best advice I could give to anyone going into theatre is just not to be afraid to ask for advice. Theatre can definitely sometimes feel like quite an exclusive group, which we and Sammy have spoken about kind of put us off when we first realised that we really wanted to to try and get into theatre, that we felt like it just wasn't somewhere that we belonged. But kind of as we've we've got into it and got to know more people, you realise that it's particularly now more of a space for for people like us to come and make, make new work and to kind of bring a like more stories into into the mix and you'll find your community in theatre that wants to support you there's brilliant companies you know like damsel productions the upsetters purple moon drama like loads that will want to help so just don't be afraid to to reach out like reach out to us and be like you know i want to try this i'm interested in this i have a question about this there's no they're like there's no stupid questions kind of thing like i've definitely asked a few questions i've been like "Mm, i probably should know the answer to this but like no i shouldn't i'm learning as i go kind of thing and like also if you you like really into female-led work and which is great damsel productions are also good ones to look out for it was actually their show grotty that was on at the bunker theater that made me and sammy we saw it together and it was about like the kind of lesbian underground nightclub scene of london it's really cool and that was part of the reason that we then wanted to be at the bunker we finished our show at the bunker in mid-september and now we're kind of busy planning our like our plans for 2020 we've got some cool things in the work we're probably going to do a new writing night for queer artists and yeah we've got some other larger projects that we're we're working on at the moment so you can keep an eye on our website which is lemonhousetheatre.com and our twitter is at lemonhousetc and then our instagram is at lemonhousetheatre and we'll kind of announce any of our upcoming stuff like on that but it'd be really nice to to see some dear damsels people at future stuff and yeah like i said if you're if you're someone's interested in theater like always feel free to reach out we love we love working with new people thanks so much to lemon house theater we personally cannot wait to see all the exciting projects they'll be putting on in the future and we really recommend giving them a follow in the meantime now we've come to the section of the podcast called Online Offline, which is when we talk about things that we've seen happening online, trends that people are responding to, general cultural moments or things of significance that we kind of want to talk about in the podcast. And at the moment, um, we're currently working on two print publications, which is the DD Annual 2020 and Let Me Know in Your Home. So something that's on our mind a lot at the moment is the idea of women in print. And because it's the end of the decade, currently calling 2019, 2020 is very, very close by. We thought that there was something here that would be worth talking about the trends that have happened in the past 10 years about women's voices, how they're presented in the media. For us, it's the literature, it's magazines and books that we personally have spoken about before. There's been a definite shift in some of the narratives, some of the purpose and some of the voices that are being shared. And we just thought it'd be a great space for us to talk about that, really. Yeah, I mean, it's a big subject, but we mm-hmm. we, we like big questions. Um, we yeah. like big questions. Yeah, I mean, it's just worth thinking about 10 years ago in comparison to where we are now and the type of people that we're hearing from and the women who are sharing their voices and even how they're sharing their voices. The spaces that are opening up, you know, it's incredible in comparison to how it was, but it's worth maybe taking a step back and trying to look at some of these patterns and what they might mean for us coming forward. And one thing that when I was thinking about this that came to me was that idea of otherness and difference. You know, you can listen to any voice now. You can read people on Twitter. You can find them on Facebook. You can hear them in newspapers. Like there's definitely been a sort of opening to 
being willing to hear different perspectives that there might not have been before. And specifically, when I think about print, I think about some of the memoirs, some of the nonfiction books that have gone really, really well and have made a real impact. Something that I remember experiencing maybe two, three years ago was there were suddenly quite a few nonfiction books about trans experience. And for me, that was something that I found really important because I identify as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, but I didn't really know that much about trans people. I didn't really know that much about their experiences. And then I read um, The Gender Games by Juno Dawson, which then took me to trans a memoir. And I read quite a few books on this subject. It felt really groundbreaking. It felt quite revolutionary. Like this was a discussion, this was a voice, this was a perspective that I hadn't heard before or hadn't had the access to hear before. That made me sort of think about um, what happened early in the year with, not this year, even last year, with why I'm no longer talking to white people about race and the essay collection, Good Immigrants, sort of came up close around the same time where they were offering this very important and very much needed perspective in a way that was really accessible, which was through a book. And they both made massive impacts. They became sort of cultural moments, but that's because there was such an appetite for it. I don't think 10 years ago, those kind of books, well, maybe they were around, but they definitely didn't have the same prominence that they have had in the past 10 years. Mm, And it's interesting because like you say, there's lots of different ways coming through that stories can be shared. You know, print is the most traditional but it shows you those publications how much power books can have for a start but also they can the way they can promote conversation obviously there's kind of a there's press tours around these books so sometimes perhaps that conversation is quite constructed but I think if you if somebody is writing these books it gives them a platform to speak about them in different different places so you know like whether that's on tv radio whatever so you know sometimes you could think that books maybe are restricted to people who read so because I guess that you know that is a limit to them but I think generally mm-hmm. some the the amazing thing about a book is that it can really be a platform for someone who has something to say it can like often that's the start of somebody's career in in different places they, they write a book first and maybe then they go on to do a podcast so I do think books still can be a starting point. Something I heard about recently at a talk I went to, which I thought was an interesting point, was that to have a book published, it's an amazing thing, but it's still somebody else like giving you a platform. You have to, mm. there's a barrier there. You have to convince somebody else that your story is a story worth telling. So is that as empowering as it could be, the fact that you're not, you're, you have to be given that platform? Whereas, if you compare it to kind of internet platforms, you can often, it's very DIY, like you can do it, you can just, yeah. you can find a space, nobody has to give you that permission, you, you can just take take it, that's quite exciting too, so like there's different, uh, yeah, there's sort of different sides to each yeah. medium. Uh, yeah, I think that we can't have this discussion about different voices and diversity in print without thinking about online platforms, independent zines, and that real self-started DIY community that has definitely built up. You see the existing structures, you see the existing publishing houses, or you see the existing print media and can't see yourself there, can't identify yourself there. So you create it for yourself. Like we've definitely had like a massive boom of that in the past, like even five years or so, like Gaudem, for example, started as an online magazine, which it still is. But now it's like, you know, it's a imprint, basically. They do events, they have merchandise, like it's a massive thing. 
But that is because the founder, Live Little, was like, nothing's out there for me. I'm going to create it myself. Mm. Um, and that's a similar as well, recent thing with A Quick Ting On, which is a series of books about the Black British experience. Again, that wasn't being shared. So the founder, Mags, just was like, one day, I want to read these books. I'm going to get all my friends to write them. And now that's launching next year. And it was like, had a front page spread in The Guardian. People are responding to it. But I think the only thing that might have changed, because you say about you still need to convince someone that your story is worth telling, Maybe it's not necessarily easier to convince people, but there are more people who are willing to give you the chance to try and convince them, if mm. that makes sense. People are willing to hear this you know, from you and hear about what you have to say in a way that maybe they weren't beforehand because the door's been opened by some bigger, you know, the door's been opened by some previous books that have done really well and people are understanding that there's a need for this and there's a mm. want for people to do these sorts of stories that there may not have been beforehand. Yeah, actually, um, I was reading a piece by Bernadine Evaristo in The Guardian. And that, mm. for further reading, she talks, oh, I can't, we'll put the link, but she basically reflects back on her entire career and how she, her journey of getting, you know, cause she's been writing for decades mm. and recently won uh, the Man Booker Prize. And she reflects back, she talks about exactly what you were just saying, that she, she references Gaudem and these sort of things that weren't around when she was first writing, these women who are, claiming spaces and just mm. basically going out and and doing it but I think another point of discussion on books specifically as a medium is that you can get so we've talked about those non-fiction books like Good Immigrant but there's also kind of more how-tos and guides coming through around and about activism it's interesting how these are kind of being published as yeah how-tos and I think that really does come out of this feeling that we mentioned earlier that people are looking for a way like a starting point that they're seeing yeah. a lot of things in society that they want to change they want to see change and they just don't know how to go about it because it's obviously a massive challenge but I think that's such an interesting way of how books can promote change that they can they can be manuals and they can be more digestible and give you a starting point so there's um examples like gina martin's be the change which is described as a toolkit for activism um mm. little black book which is brilliant and has kind of lists of contacts and tips you also mentioned perhaps not the original at all but maybe uh, you can't not mention this book if you're talking about yeah. these kind of guides <laughs> is Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg, which was, you know, kind of an original how-to telling women that they kind of have to become yeah. part of that patriarchal structure. Yeah, what I think it, is interesting as well is how you're talking about these books. It's like, well, before we start recording, um, we were saying about how these are being told as how-tos, manuals, toolkits, and it's so different from, like, self-help. They're less focused on, oh, change yourself, and then you will see the change. It's more like, no, you're fine. Here's how you can change the society around you. Here's how you can change the structures of which you're operating in. Less focused on the individual as the problem, but like the individual as a solution. That sort of switch away. It's not like fix yourself in five days. It's like dismantle the patriarchy in five days. Like that is kind of the like <laughs> difference in language that I think is coming in all of these publications. Yeah, oh god, that's such a good point. This conversation actually reminded me also of a book that I found in like a little churchyard in Hay on Wye. It was this book called Our Bodies Ourselves. And at the time that I picked it up, I didn't realise that it was a huge cultural phenomenon. It was originally published in 1970 and it's essentially a guide to women's health. 
like a fully in-depth and radically for its time like radically in-depth with photos Mm. and yeah sort of step-by-step guides to everything you could want to know about the woman's body yeah from what I've heard what I've read and heard about it it really did create cultural shockwaves it was a book that women were passing around because Mm. that would be published at a time where even more so than today women's sexual health just wasn't talked about you can sort of youtube it or google it like how do you find out the answers to the questions you have and that's something amazing about a book isn't it that though there is restriction there that you have to be able to afford to buy books yeah which also is why libraries are so essential once you have that book the fact that it can be passed around is Mm. i just love that that's so that just feels like a act of well just like sisterhood and empowering yeah definitely I mean, your fact about the accessibility and things and money barriers and stuff leads quite nicely onto what we wanted to talk about in the final point, which although this discussion is focusing on print and trends within print, we couldn't talk about the general media without making a mention of podcasts, um, which are accessible. Um, they're free. You share them between friends. I was just saying to Abs, I think I have at least three conversations a week, which start with, I heard this in a podcast or I know this because of a podcast. They're definitely something that in the last five, like five, four years have become another point of media, another point of consumption, another point of information in the same way the books are. They're less physical, but they're still very present. When I was doing a little bit of reading about this, um, Abby was laughing at me, but I've managed to put up some stats, which I thought were very interesting. Um, so now this is from Ofcom, 7.1 million people in the UK listen to podcasts each week. Half of these listeners are under 35, which means that they're millennials. There's a study by Midas that says that the majority of podcast listeners are actually male. Men consist of 63% of all listeners, while women consist of 37% of all listeners, which I don't think is true. But this is apparently from last year. Well, it's um, interesting um, because I know that audiobooks have obviously also seen this boom in recent years and they yeah. are they're read by a vast majority of men as well. Interesting. Yeah, but and I think it's an interesting point. Um, and then like, well, I was like having a think about this and we discussed this as well, Abs, in that terms of accessibility and a free platform. And like it is, but we're not trying to undersell what we're doing here. It is very easy to record a podcast. <laughs> like Abby is quite literally in Australia and we are still somehow managing to record this, which is pretty incredible. And we're doing it for free. That ease and the accessibility that recording for podcasts has outside of books, outside of having to convince someone to that your story is worth listening to, you can decide that for yourself and you can just take it on and you can get out there you know be heard um as a marginalized voice in a space where you wouldn't usually be heard before and I was wondering about these stats and I was just thinking is it maybe like all media because all media is well most media is run by white upper class men so maybe that's sort of the same with podcasts maybe it's like now in the upcoming years we'll see a bigger boom of women even though from my perspective there are so many female podcasts like I checked the top 10 yeah so many um this is just one of them um, but like I checked the top 10 chart before this expecting to have like my expectation changed like oh I bet it'll just be like five podcasts with men in it but it wasn't number one is Stacey Solomon's podcast which I did not know she had amazing um, number two I know number two is a podcast with Amber Anna and Yuandi from Love Island and number three is Shag Mary Get Annoyed by Rosie and Chris Ramsey who are a married couple so that's like three women top three like regardless of the fact that the listeners are male there is still a diverse growth out there. And I think this is just obviously going to keep changing as more people are able to have their voices heard and more people are able to utilize the 
tools that they've been given and get onto a podcast but I just think it's really interesting and we really enjoy doing the podcast it's definitely like a different way of consuming media we started it mainly to try and help talk about the pieces that we have on the site and give them more of a permanence but it's grown into something a lot more really which I think is really great yeah and I think the sheer number of podcasts that are out there for you to consume for free like you say it's just incredible and they're essentially just like really in-depth conversations and there's not really pieces that you can get that like such a uh like an hour for for two people to like really get into one subject and present like a really well-rounded conversation about it a lot of people don't have time for reading but podcasts can be listened to on the go you know that you can find whole new oh god you can just really get through a whole series of a podcast within a week it's amazing I mean actually I just remembered as you I just remembered as you were talking that actually in the um uh, the Ofcom, no, the Midas study, it said that like 90% of people listen to podcasts sped up so that they can listen to more of it. And I was just Do like, you know one, that help me. Yeah, one, I was like, this will help me with the like 400 podcasts that I still need to listen to. But also, isn't that just so interesting? And it's like a more controllable way of consuming media. You know, it's just so, so interesting. I have a podcast recommendation. Oh, love that. Yeah, so it's basically a recording. The event itself really links into this conversation, but it's a recording of an event I went to in Melbourne, where I live now, a couple of weeks ago. So it was the Broadside Festival, which is a new feminist festival in Australia. And it's uh, this was its very first year. And the speakers at the whole thing were incredible like there was Sadie Smith and Gia Tolentino and amazing other speakers so really cool festival but I only went to one event and the event I went to was called Who Gave You Permission? Speaking Up and Speaking Out the speakers were Nayuka Gori, Raquel Willis, Ariel Levy and Curtis Sittenfield. There was this interesting moment when the chair asked the panel about why they chose the medium Mm. of writing to convey their feminist message basically was the question I think which is a like a big question and initially Curtis Sittenfield was um seemed a bit unsure and maybe didn't seem like she could claim that she was coming to her books I don't so for example her most recent book is eligible so maybe she felt like she couldn't Mm. claim that she was writing eligible first and foremost as a feminist and kind of backed away Mm. and was a bit like oh I think you know non-fiction is the area that what you more naturally turn to if you want to make change and so it's interesting that we've spoken about earlier in this conversation about those non-fiction books like from the manuals and the how-tos to why I'm no longer talking to white people about race but then the conversation shifted and the this panelists all kind of just discussed how fiction can be such an incredible way to make change because you're inviting someone into a story like that's such an amazing tool because you're not you can kind of like slide an important message under the table you know you can if it's a book about women and it's a book about a woman's like sharing her voice and her feelings that's a a feminist act in itself so it was just interesting to see them discuss fiction and non-fiction and how they have different roles to play that conversation was recorded and is available through the Wheeler Centre podcast and is such an interesting talk but also just to recommend all of the broadside talks that they're putting up on the Wheeler Centre podcast like we were were saying like really in-depth conversations yeah it's like I mean absolutely incredible that's such an interesting discussion also just to take it back to the women in print stuff I know we've just been talking about podcasts and how they are 
maybe arguably better than books in some ways. What you've said here is it's a different sort of medium, right? So podcast, you probably have to title the episode with what the subject will be about. You've got 40 to 45 minutes to discuss it. Whereas in books, I really liked when you're talking about the underlying sort of messages that you can do in like a subtle way, the way that you can invite people in and then make them understand the experience throughout a longer period of time. Books can be as political, they can be as active as we keep talking about, they can be as changing and they can be as open to as many people as possible. But that way that they can still serve a purpose despite the changing media landscape. So good to hear that like all these women were basically saying that, you know, really understanding the power that being a female voice in print can still have. Mm. Um, sounds really great. Yeah. Which I was there. So that takes us on to the what you need to know part of this podcast, which is when we talk to you about what we've been doing at DD, the sort of projects we're working on, and basically just keep you up to date as we love to do that. Um, so as we've talked about already, we are working on lots of things at the moment, two print publications, but the main one of which we want to talk to you about is the DD Annual 2020. If you don't know what the annual is, we pull together all our, well, some of our favourite pieces from throughout the year that we've published online, and we put it into a print collection to some of our year and to celebrate the collective. It's always something we love doing and what you might not have known is that all of the pieces we discussed at the start of this podcast are pieces <laughs> that will be featured in the annual so you can go through the show notes and read them online but maybe what you might prefer to do is to read them all in lovely print as we've just talked about how brilliant print is yeah, it's also worth mentioning that the annual is a as of everything we do it's a collective piece of work and um, we work with Buff Spa Illustration Society and produce original illustrations for the insides. We've also worked with some independent illustrators. The cover is designed by Alice Clark and it's got original photography from Libby Erland in it. It's just a really nice visual piece of work and celebration of female creativity. If you're interested in pre-ordering a copy or buying a copy, like Abby said, whenever you listen to this, there'll be a link in the show notes for you. Yay. And Yay. something else to quickly mention that you might well know that we've been working on is Let Me Know When You're Home. The first book that we've put together following our Kickstarter earlier this year, that's going to be something really exciting on the horizon for 2020. You can also, if you haven't yet, listen to our like Let Me Know When You're Home podcast special, which we recorded earlier this year for that. So that's just ridiculously exciting as well. We pressed Send to Print just a couple of days ago after <laughs> after various yeah. back and forth. People really make it seem much more glamorous, like sending a book to print, even though I have worked in publishing. It's so much, so much extra admin that you just never think about. But we are very excited to see the printed copies, which will be with us in February of next year. And we're sure that you'll be seeing it all over our social media. And we're really excited about it. We've also, talking about 2020, what we've got coming up, we are going to have an event of some sort in the first quarter of 2020. Um, we'll hold off from sharing details for now, but it's going to be something a bit different for us um, and working with a really exciting partner. So that is very exciting for DD in 2020 as well. There is, of course, going to be loads of stuff happening in 2020, so you can keep up to date with everything we're doing through our website and social media and through this lovely podcast as well. Thank you for listening to Her Own Words. You can read all the pieces that we've mentioned on our website, www.deardamsels.com and find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Dear Damsels. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd love to share it far and wide and perhaps even subscribe. You can review and rate it on whichever podcast provider you're currently listening to us on. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Bye, Abs.
Bye, Bryce.